Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. Welcome to another episode of The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It. My name is Riley Haas, the author of that book, and I'm joined once again by my friend Dave. Hello. How are you doing? I'm not doing too bad. And today we are talking about the early years of The Beatles. A particularly hard time to judge for modern people because of how old the music sounds. They were, in my opinion, incredibly groundbreaking at the time, but it is really hard to hear that in the 21st century when they sound like they are from a very, very... They sound like an oldies act, basically. I mean, they are an oldies act. I mean, they are an oldies act, but they sound like... I mean, I feel like, anyway, they sound like from a a very, very distant uh, past, the early, early Beatles stuff. So I'm going to try to explain why the Beatles' first two albums and their early singles transformed music in a way that we just really can't tell. But it's worth mentioning that I'm not going to, as I mentioned in the last episode, I'm not going to talk about everything they did. In addition to the recordings we're going to talk about in this uh, show, the Beatles toured incessantly up through 1996, or 1966 rather, and they did numerous radio and TV performances. And you know some of those were recorded. In fact, some of them are available on, on something called Live at the BBC. And also some of the live performances are available on the first part of the anthology. We are not talking about any of that stuff. And we're also not talking about, as I mentioned before, we're not talking about any demos or anything like that. But it's important to know that the Beatles toured so much and were everywhere, especially in the UK, they were ubiquitous. And one of the reasons they were, they actually had a like sort of a reaction later is because they were so popular that it was like, in the UK in particular, that you could not avoid them in any way. I'm not sure I've lived through a musical act that was as popular as they were in the UK, and certainly in my lifetime. But like there were because there was one point at which they had like five of the top ten singles on the British chart, which is like I like I can't even imagine what that would have been like. It would have been really annoying, put it mildly, if you if you especially if you didn't like the band. So that's just something to keep in mind that also I think one of the reasons that the Beatles have sort of their legacy may have faded in time is because especially in the UK, to a lesser extent in the US, and though for a little while in the US too, they were just unavoidable. And like I said, we're not talking about any of the stuff that's sort of outside of the actual recordings. So as I said earlier, we're not doing a biography and I'm not super concerned with what the Beatles did before they released Love Me Do in 1962. The Quarrymen would have been any old unknown uh, skiffle group that was a style of like rock and roll derived music in uh, the late 50s and early 60s in the UK. If John Lennon and McCartney and Harrison, who joined him later, hadn't formed the Beatles, no one would have heard of the Quarrymen. The same is true of the Silver Beatles, their five-person iteration prior to the recording contract. They might have been a bit of a, a lost legend. You know, one of those, like, sort of, everybody claims to have seen them, but nobody really, really did, had they never actually got a recording contract, because they did have a residency at a place called the Cavern Club in Liverpool for a while. They became very, very popular before they were ever signed. And, of course, as I mentioned before at the previous episode, before they had the residency of the Cavern Club, they also played for two years in Germany where they were playing something like eight shows a day, which is just crazy. I don't know how long those shows were, but they were playing eight shows a day. You got to hope they were less. Shows. 
yeah, you gotta hope it was less than an hour per show. I really, I really, really hope. <laughs> but by the time they were signed, though, however, they had played for forever, and they were extremely good at what they did, and they were extremely professional compared to their competition in the UK, because no one else had toured really like they had. And though our standards of musicianship have changed, and certainly we have much higher ideals of what people should be as a as competent musicians, the Beatles were even though they were fairly primitive musicians in 1962, were very competent for the for a rock and roll band in the UK at the time, just because of their uh, how much time they played together. It's also notable that they apparently at the Cavern Club in Liverpool put on one of the best shows in Europe at the time. No less than Lemmy has said that if you wanted to see a crazy rock show in the early 60s, you didn't go see the Rolling Stones, you saw the Beatles. This is before they were signed. and a lot of that has been lost because they became so big so quickly that they went from playing in clubs to playing in stadiums very fast. And many of those stadiums had screaming women in them who drowned out everything, including the band themselves at times. And so that's the memory people have of the Beatles is screaming girls and not being able to hear the music. But And actually, it's, it's worth noting that they had to be, in order to get a contract and, and be successful, they were actually cleaned up by their manager. Their supposedly scandalous long hair was was shortened a little bit, even though it was still supposedly scandalous at the time. They had to wear suits. They had to do things. They wore leather jackets when they performed before they made it big. But once they got a recording contract, they had to wear suits because that's what you did in 1962. You wore a suit. Anyway, here is a very brief. I'm uh, loving the idea of the Beatles wearing leather. Yeah, it's funny. There's There are pictures, actually. So very, very brief. John Lennon formed the Quarrymen in 1956 with a bunch of friends. Eventually, Paul McCartney joined on, on rhythm guitar to replace somebody. And then eventually, uh, he convinced John Lennon to let George Harrison join, who was a younger than them. Then later on, a guy named Stuart Sutcliffe joined on bass. And soon they changed the names a bunch of times. And eventually, they became the Silver Beatles for a while. And eventually, they dropped the, the silver. Stuart Sutcliffe quit to learn how to paint or go to art school for painting. And McCartney switched over to bass. And then Pete Best was hired as a permanent drummer. However, their manager decided he didn't like the fit in the band. And so the manager fired him and placed him with a guy named Ringo Starr. And that is the birth of the first Beatles conspiracy, where like Pete Best is supposedly a better drummer than Ringo Starr. And there's something, uh, who knows, nefarious something or others. Anyway, there's actually, Pete Best actually put out an album called Best of the Beatles, where he covered the Beatles in order to try to take advantage of the fact that he missed out on a, uh, you know, a lot of money. So there are people who do believe that the firing of Pete Best and replacing with uh, Ringo Starr is, is like this art, uh, this is proof that the Beatles were quote unquote manufactured. As I've already said, the Beatles had played like hundreds of shows by the time that they had a recording contract. And before they had even met their manager, Brian Epstein, they, they had played tons of shows, of course, not with Ringo, with the other three guys. And so, I've always thought it was really laughable that there are people who would like to dismiss the Beatles as a manufactured boy band because like they were they've been performing together in somewhere at least two of them for about 6 years by the time they finally uh, got in the studio for Decca. So I just wanted to throw that out there because it's a very silly thing to say and also speaks to people not knowing very much about them. So, one thing to get out of the way before we start before we get to the recordings themselves, mm-hmm. there is the version problem. In Britain, the Beatles would release a single, 
And it was, for those of you who don't know what a single is, because you live in the 21st century, a single was a very short record that contained only two songs on it. One on one side of the record, one on the other side of the record, the A side and the B side. And then a little bit later, they would release a long player, which for them was about 30 to 35 minutes in length, containing approximately 12 songs. And they would draw some other singles from that and release them. But the big habit in the UK was to release some singles separately from the LP. They would not be on the LP. That is not the case in the US. The US, you put your singles on the LP. You don't have separate records. And so what happened, even before the Beatles agreed to a deal with Capitol Records in the US, is bastardized Beatles albums started to come out in the US. But even after they agreed to a deal with the Capitol, with Capitol in the US, Capitol would take the singles and stick them on the LP and take off LP tracks. So the American LPs were not the same as the UK LPs. In addition, they sometimes had new names. So for example, the Please Please Me was released in early 1963 in, uh, in the UK. And then later on, it was released as Meet the Beatles in 1964 in the US, containing a combination of music from various British albums. That would happen through 1966. And as a standard for understanding the Beatles' progression, we go with the British albums, with the one exception of Magical Mystery Tour, which I will explain when we get there. But if you are Canadian or American and your parents or grandparents now have like an LP called like Beatles 65 or something like that, that is not a real Beatles album. It is a bastardized capital album where they combine like parts of three different Beatles albums recorded over different periods of time because they couldn't figure out what to do about the fact that there were singles and LPs that were separate, even though there was space for all of this on a record at the time, because they, the Beatles didn't fill up an entire 40 minutes. So with this, were, were they one of the earlier bands that I guess would have made it big that this would have been a issue for, or was this sort of a known thing beforehand? Nobody in the U S knew about it. So people in the U.S. for years, years, in fact, I think until CDs, thought that the early Beatles albums were called Meet the Beatles, Beatles 65, and some other things, except for A Hard Day's Night. A Hard Day's Night had the real name. It was a different track listing, but it had the same name. And nobody really knew unless you'd traveled to the U.K. Or you bought, you somehow got an import in a store or something, yeah. When the CDs were released, that's when, in, in like the late 80s, that's when the correction first happened. Because at that point, the, uh, the Beatles, whoever owned the catalog, I think it was at that point, it was Michael Jackson or somebody, just was like, we're going to make sure we're actually going to release the British versions. The other thing to note is that from Sgt. Pepper on, there is no problem anymore. Okay. They, they fixed it. But the early Beatles albums, they're different. So that brings us to where you can find this stuff and i mean that's sort of moot now because it's all on streaming but basically there is a singles collection of the uk singles called past masters which is where the the british singles are because they're not on the lps and so most of the famous beatles songs are actually on past masters rather than the albums or many of the most famous beatles songs it's also worth noting as i mentioned earlier magical mystery tour is a u.s album that is the only U.S. album that is canon. It was released as a double EP in the U.K., which is a whole other thing, which I will get to a number of episodes from now. So, without any further ado...
Alright, that is Love Me Do, the first ever Beatles song, or first official Beatles song, and it was uh, released on October 5th, 1962 in the UK, and not until like the summer of 1964 in the US or something like that. It was uh, recorded in September of 1962, and it has a B-side called P.S. I Love You. You can sort of tell it sounds like another time. There's a harmonica riff, for lack of a better word. There is an extremely primitive bass line. It really doesn't sound particularly innovative or shocking uh, to us, I think. But in fact, a harmonica hook was actually basically unknown in the UK at the time. It wasn't a thing that UK bands did. And there's one section in the song where uh, the entire band drops out except for Paul McCartney singing, which was also like really weird for the time. And nobody can really know for sure why, but like this song took off in the UK. And the other thing that's uh, interesting is that back then, as we sort of talked about in one of the earlier episodes, there were very distinct styles of music. And the B-side, P.S. I Love You, is is more of a rhythm and blues ballad than an up-tempo uh, harmonica-driven rock song. And so the inclusion of two fairly distinct genres on the same single was already a sort of indication that this was not a normal thing, certainly for a UK band. And I just want to read briefly some musicological analysis of P.S. I Love You to sort of give some idea of the fact that the Beatles were already being weird. This guy's name is Alan Pollock, and he says, The strangest chord of all in P.S. I Love You is the dominant seventh chord on C-sharp, employed in an intro as a surrogate five chord. The naturally occurring chord on C-sharp in the key of D is a diminished seventh chord, and that seventh chord works nicely as a substitute five because it is a sonic equivalent of the B7 chord with the root note missing. In modifying the C-sharp diminished chord into a dominant seventh, the Beatles throw us a curveball in that you'd sooner expect the, la- the latter chord to resolve to the key of F-sharp. Against all textbook rules and logic, they rely on the stepwise movement of all voices, C-sharp to D, E-sharp to F-sharp, G-sharp to A, and B to A, to make it quote-unquote work. Still, coming right at the beginning, as it does, it's an attention grabber. Now, I have no grounding in musical theory. A lot of that is kind of gobbledygook to me but this is you know person who is uh he spent a lot of time studying what the beatles did with uh, their chord progressions and for him even at this the second song of theirs is weird in a way that at least at the time was not very conventional so now i'm briefly going to play the song that was topping the charts right before love me do claim out i can somehow manage it off sounding very foreign and exotic and then immediately goes into like a very cheesy early 60s organ thing some other songs that were big hits at the time the locomotion which at least some of us have heard through a cover probably it might as well rain into september the carol king song and a forgotten elvis song called she's not you so the british top 10 at the time was you know there's got telstar which is uh is fairly distinct and you have, if you don't know me, 
Ray Charles is sort of grant one of Ray Charles's groundbreaking country covers. If you don't know much about Ray Charles's career, he of course started as one of the inventors of soul music, and then in the early '60s he started covering country, which was just like batshit crazy for an artist to do, uh, especially a black artist in the early '60s, and like did phenomenally well in the U.S. as a result of that. And one of those songs had made it onto the top ten. Okay, but the other eight songs, which we are not going to go through, they're all kind of like of their era. They don't really stand out. I've subjected myself to listening to them. You can read about them in the book version of this. They are fairly dull, let's put it that way, and also extremely dated. And I think one reason maybe why Love Me Do really, really stood out is because of uh, it was so distinct from, and I just picked that particular week, but like, so distinct, much like Telstar was, from the music that was dominating the charts in the UK at the time. So that is the title track of the Beatles' first album. It was released on uh, January 11th, 1963. It has 12 songs on it. Roughly half of them to two-thirds were written by uh, the Beatles, and the others are covers. So it's tough to state the full impact of this album, and I'm not sure I can do a really great job of conveying it if you have not listened to a lot of music from the early 60s in Britain, the United States. As we talked about previously in another episode, genres had their own charts, and bands generally fit into the genre that you uh, were trying to get on the chart for. That's how your band was marketed, and you would even have, in some cases, you had a touring circuit that was set uh, specifically to your genre, especially when it came to African-American groups who were stuck playing, you know, basically what was called the Chitlin circuit. Whatever you think of Please Please Me Now, it's notable for two major things. The first is that it was rare for a rock band at the time to have a lot of material written in-house. And the second and possibly more notable thing is that their covers ranged like across genres in a way that nobody really was doing, at least on one record. In a previous episode, we talked about how Elvis played different genres, but rarely did he do it on the same record. He would release a gospel record. He would release a rock and roll record. Um, he would release a country. Okay. The other thing I want to talk about is the energy of the album, which was recorded in a single day, which is kind of insane now. So this was actually the loudest and most raucous music that people in the UK had heard before. As certainly anyone who hadn't seen the band live. The the sort of the crowning moment of that is Twist and Shout, the Beatles cover of Twist and Shout, in which John Lennon sings himself hoarse and they left it in. I don't know if, if you are familiar with that version, Dave. basically loses his voice in the middle of it and it was not something that people did particularly in the uk at the time even though it doesn't sound loud or raucous to us because we've like experienced punk and metal it was in the uk in early 1963 so the beatles wrote eight of the 14 songs and that includes 
the other songs that were released as singles earlier. So they were relatively stylistically different from each other, uh, even though they really sound similar to us. The reason why this just sounds like British Invasion rock and roll is because this is the invention of British Invasion rock and roll, this album. It didn't exist before this album. There wasn't a British Invasion until 1964, of course, and the smashing of American genres together that the British Invasion represented happened because this album and later Beatles albums and then other people following the Beatles happened. The Beatles wrote rock songs, rock and roll songs. They also wrote R&B battles and they wrote other things, which was just not something that you did. Rolling Stone has once said that the Beatles established the idea of a self-contained independent rock band with this record. I don't know how accurate that is. The Beach Boys already existed. So I don't know if it's entirely true. The, Be- the Beach Boys were writing some of their own material, though not that much to start, unlike the Beatles. Somebody's at least alleged that. So very little of this music gets airplay anymore. I saw her standing there. Honestly, I don't even know how much it gets played outside of all these stations three. anymore. <laughs> is uh arguably the most rock sounding song on the record even though now it doesn't it doesn't really sound that rockish but i would suggest if you don't believe i saw her standing there sounds like a rock song go check out surfing usa by the beach boys which came out the exact same month listen to that album and and listen to i saw her standing there and you can tell the dynamic difference for lack of a better word between the beatles song and the early beach boy stuff so they were already starting to sort of repeat themselves a little bit. They, uh, Misery, which is the next track, is very similar to the B-side of Let Me Do, P.S. I Love You. And it's sort of an indication of where the band was with their limitations at the time. But they do have some variations. One stops off fast, the other starts off a lot slower. And it wasn't as common to sort of move the pace around like they do in both of the songs. Also, this is a song that is called Misery. And it's fairly upbeat, which is, I don't know, I guess probably a little bit weird. Uh, this is the first Beatles song, that instrument rather, other than a guitar, bass, or drums. And there's a piano part overdubbed by their producer. The next song is Ask Me Why, which was the B-side to Please Please Me. And it's sort of more sophisticated and sort of a little more interesting and weird compared to a lot of stuff they were doing to start. So they actually, there's three verses and the music to the verses changes. But very, very subtly, they don't really draw your attention to it. And it's indicative of the stuff that they were doing, even in the beginning, but within a very constrained, you know, this sort of format of two guitars or one guitar and harmonica, bass and drums. We already played Please Please Me. It is arguably very distinct from Love Me Do. It is their second signal, but arguably it is a much better song. And it came out only like, like a month later or something. I think it's just like Love Me Do is I'm not as you can probably tell I'm not a fan of Love Me Do. Uh, I think Please Please Me is is better. It's a catchier song, it's a more compelling performance. It's less inane lyrically <laughs> than Love Me Do is. It's also uh, apparently the chords are weirder. Uh, uh the musicologist Alan Pollock tells me the chords are weirder. It's just it's just clearly better and it was literally their second single. There's also the next song is Do You Want to Know Secret, which I don't really care much for. And so I'm just going to skip over. But 
Oh, the one notable thing is George Harrison sings it because he wasn't writing his own songs yet. Oh, and it has a, a the first ever progression overdub on a Beatles song, which would become like on almost every song they did for a while. So then there's there's a place which is arguably the first Beatles song to try to move on from just singing about like straight up just like I love you, do you want to dance with me kind of nonsense, which Brian Wilson was also trying to explore at the time. It was notably it was released six months before In My Room, which is Brian Wilson's sort of big departure from writing songs about quote unquote cars, cars and girls. There is a stupid Beatles versus Beach Boys argument that I'm going to address at the end of all this, which is stupid, but I just wanted to point that out for anybody who is out there already saying the Beach Boys are more important than Beatles because this is essentially the Beatles version of In My Room and it came out six months before that one did. But to me, the real draw to this record actually is the covers and it's the the variety of the covers and their wide listening habits reflect their wide listening habits. So they they did change some of these songs a little bit, but subtly not in the way that like certainly I appreciate for a good cover. I really like covers that are weirder, different than the original. But they did mm-hmm. make little subtle changes to a lot of these songs. So I'll just I'll just mention the covers. Uh, so the first is Anna, which was a soul song that very very few British people actually were aware of. It had only been released in the U.S. a couple of months earlier. And uh, they were already somehow getting their record, their hands on like U.S. soul records. We don't really know how that happened. They dropped a string section that was in Anna, um, presumably because they didn't have the budget. And they uh, they finished the they wrote the ending like there was a fade out in the original, and instead they they wrote out an ending. Then the next song, "Chains," is a brill building pop tune. So already they're jumping across genres. They there was a saxophone part in the original, and they replaced it with harmonica, which isn't that weird. They also sped up the tempo and changed the ending again. Boys was a girl group tune, a Motown uh, track by the Shrells. The Beatles sort of like stripped down the arrangement because, again, they didn't play saxophone or piano. And they gave it to Ringo Starr to sing, even though it is about boys. And they began his tradition of singing the comedy song on their albums, which would continue all the way through the end of their career, basically. The next track is Baby It's You, a, a fairly famous Burt Bacharach song, which was also performed by the Shirelles at one point. The Beatles didn't really change this one, and that's not really a surprise. Burt Bacharach, of course, is known as a fairly, relatively speaking, forward-thinking uh, composer for his era. So it's it's kind of not a surprise that they would leave it as is. One thing you can say about it, though, is that John Lennon's performance is a little more um, raucous, for lack of a better word, than the original. And then there's A Taste of Honey, which was a tune from a Broadway uh, version of a British play. And that's perhaps the most notable departure from what rock bands normally played. It was not normal at the time to cover songs from musicals if you were a rock band. It just didn't happen. Not only that they played soul, Motown, and uh, O'Brill building pop, like classic pop, they also were going into Broadway, which is just not a, a thing that was done, and showed like how like varied their tastes were, but also like it just they shortened it so they could slow it down. And then it's also notable that they play around with the meter a little bit. And then of course the most famous moment on the record is Twist and Shout of the covers but arguably it's I, I probably more famous now than even i saw her standing there which was a uh a phil Spector track and then famous by the isley brothers 
the Beatles changed it a fair amount. They changed the key, they changed the rhythm, and they completely changed the ending. And arguably, I think it's the best thing here. It's certainly the most enduring song they'd recorded on their first record. And as I've said to you before, Dave, John Lennon sings himself hoarse because it was the end of their ridiculous... Why they would record an album in a day, I don't know, but they did. So yeah, it is the birth in many ways of the British invasion, though the British invasion hadn't necessarily started. And it is, I know Rolling Stone says it's sort of the birth of the self-contained rock band, but it was certainly the birth of the idea of something else other than rock and roll, which came to be known as pop rock, specifically because of the genre jumping, which sounds very, very primitive to us now. And it, I think it's safe to say if you listen to Please Please Me right now, you all think this is this is a genre of music. This is not a couple of genres of music. It sounds like one genre. But the fact is that it was multiple genres together, which bands usually didn't. You know, if you if you were a soul group, you didn't play pop music. You know, if you were Motown, you didn't play other forms of soul. You played the very specific pop soul of Motown. If you were a country band, you didn't record any of this type of stuff. And so, but the Beatles were British and they didn't know. They had no idea that you weren't supposed to record like Broadway tunes, right? Like they just didn't, nobody told them. So they were able to do this in part because of where they were based and because they did have access to these these influences. But it was being in the UK sort of freed them up to to make these decisions that like like some producer or label or something in the States would have been like, don't do that. We can't release the song or we have to record a separate album if you're going to record music like that. And the result was that like, you know, they they created this idea for these other British bands that like you could just listen to American music and take the parts you liked and put it together as something, which soon came to be known as pop rock but like had not been called that yet because rock and roll was just this genre that as we talked about in the last episode had died basically. And not long after this came out, a whole bunch of other British bands as well as some American bands later, but specifically to start British bands would, would make music like this. In fact, pretty much immediately, not all of them endure today. There are plenty of British invasion bands that were like one hit wonders in the U S in particular. Um, but some of them did. And some of them were a lot, you know, some of them were louder, and rougher than the Beatles, and so sound more modern to us now. And also, the other thing that happened with this, though, a little bit later, is uh, that the British invasion would come in to the U.S. and it would end like rock and roll. I mean, rock and roll had supposedly already died, but rock and roll as people knew it, which was this very specific type of music that Presley and Chuck Berry and and Little Richard and people like that had been playing. And by fusing these different genres together, the Beatles gave permission for people in the States to do that. And so you then got people later who, who didn't like this saying the Beatles killed rock and roll. Would you say that the blending of genres is probably one of the Beatles' biggest influences that makes them the greatest rock band of all time? Yeah, like it's only going to get weirder from here. Like what they did on their first two albums is very limited compared to what they did subsequently. But the thing is the, somebody had to create pop rock, right? And like, cause yeah. 
it didn't it really and it's impossible i think it's really really hard to understand that it didn't exist for those of us who were born after its creation but it didn't exist you know this 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 genre where if you have rock songs but you also have poppier songs on the album you have you know some maybe uh some more balladly type stuff like in rock and roll there's fast and slower like that's what rock and roll is and they're all playing you know yeah. like one of the things if you go and listen to like the the mid and late 50s rock and roll albums they're kind of dull a lot of them because they're 12 songs that sound almost exactly the same to each other now some of them are performed with a lot of energy and so that makes it work a lot better you know or like if you're interested in the history of it you can hear the evolution especially with someone like chuck berry who is like inventing the way people would play guitar for a very long time but like they didn't really deviate very much and then the beatles gave people permission to deviate somewhat at least in this these early records they would as i said they would do it much more drastically starting in 1965 or so but to start it's it's really like the idea that you could have a soul song and a broadway tune on the same record is just like not a thing that people thought was possible prior to this album and in fact this album didn't uh come out in the states for a long time so after this uh, it took over a year and so they didn't actually know this was happening at first because it was only happening in the uk That is from ET, which is the Beatles' next single, released in April of 1963, and backed with a song called Thank You, Girl. And it's really not, it's nothing to write home about. It's the first time the Beatles topped all the UK charts properly. It is yet another harmonica-driven song. And it was basically like, it was written really quickly to capitalize on their success. The Beatles would be very, very aware of wanting to not fade out of the public consciousness for the brief seven and a half years they were putting out music and so they always had singles for each season and so they just this is where they started they started pumping out music and when they first started doing it eh, maybe not quite as good as it would be it's not the greatest song the b-side they've even said they don't like the b-side thank you girl they basically have said like yeah we we don't like that song However, it has a really weird touch, which is that it repeats its intro, which was not a thing that people did. And uh, they also fuck around with the uh, the verse and bridge in in ways that are kind of unconventional. However, given that nobody really likes these songs, we're going to move on to uh, She Loves You. She loves you. came out in august of 1963 was backed with i'll get you and this was their biggest hit to date again in the uk and unfortunately it introduced like you know it goes she loves you yeah 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 and apparently kids would run around saying yeah 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 all the time which sounds awful i just like can't imagine being like an older person and like you know the teenagers all saying yeah 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 to me i'm glad i didn't experience it anyway uh It also, they also, this is the first time they recorded a German language version of 
of one of their singles, which they would do a couple times in their early years. And uh, I don't know why they did it. I, they had been, you know, they had been in Hamburg for a while, and I guess they sort of figured they should get in the German market, so they recorded German lyrics. It's worth noting that it misses a bridge, which was fairly unconventional at the time, but otherwise it's not a particularly risky song for them. The fact that the, the lyrics are about a singer giving advice to a friend is a little weird for this time, but not really. But yeah, it, it was also released by somebody, I don't think Capitol, but somebody in the States, and it, it, it went nowhere, so the British Invasion had not started yet. Honestly, uh, the B-side is also kind of eh, though apparently Paul McCartney has said that it was the first sign that John Lennon was getting a little more creative in his lyric writing. I, I like John Lennon's vocal performance on I'll Get You, but otherwise, it's it's fair to throw in. So now we'll move to November 1963, which is a year after Love Me Do came out, and their second album, the Beatles would regularly put out two albums a year. It was a thing they did partly because they were only 30 minutes long, and this one is called With the Beatles. It later gave birth to the name Meet the Beatles for the abomination that was a U.S. version of the combined the two first two albums missing some stuff it is very much with the beatles is very much in the same mold as please please me but it's also a step forward in terms of the quality of everything is is better it's also the first time paul mccartney plays uh the keyboards i believe he plays piano and the songwriting's better and the covers are arguably even more diverse than they were in the first record the originals aren't quite like they're just as stylistically diverse as the first album but they're you know, not notably different from the first album, but they are playing around with more things, including an addition of a whole bunch of percussion instruments uh, that they didn't never they didn't really use before. And there's also a, the first time there's sort of a, a clear, distinct writing style difference between John Lennon and Paul McCartney, which will matter later. It is a bit of a retread of "Please Please Me," but that was a normal thing to do in the early '60s. In fact, rock bands if you could even call them rock bands at that point, didn't normally put out different albums. They tried to put out the same album over and over again. That's how you had a career. So we're going to put, we're going to start off with the track. It won't be long, which is, it has a circular chord structure with the couplets in the lyrics. And Pollock actually, Alan Pollock has actually laid it out on his website of how the couplets move around in the song. And it's a little neat. And I, I, he thinks anyway, it's, it's distinct for this particular period. It's certainly for pop songs. It's, it's a fairly raucous song, certainly compared to their earliest songs. But it's, it's also like until the ending, which is throws you for a cover ball, it's, it's not that weird compared to the first album i would say so uh all i've got to do which is the next track has uh, has a different rhythm than you would find in a in a uk r&b song one of the things they started to do at this point was they would fuse genres together within a song they were writing so it like this song sort of has the structure of an r&b ballad but it it doesn't sound like an r&b ballad they also start an intro and and sort of don't finish it the rest of the song jumps in and sort of takes over the intro which is is hard to explain without actually playing it then there's all my loving loving, 
which is uh, perhaps one of their their most forward-thinking song to date, in part because some of it sounds like a Dave Brubeck track from Time Out, which had come out a few years earlier, but was considered when it came out avant-garde. And this is like a very early uh, example of a rock band incorporating jazz. Now, not that many years earlier, jazz had actually helped spawn rock and roll, but the two had separated quite a lot by this point. So this is certainly one of the earliest examples I know of, or possibly the earliest example I know of, of a uh, rock band taking influence from jazz, though a very subtle influence. Uh, This track, if you play All My Loving for Yourself, you were like, this doesn't sound like jazz. This is also the first album to have a George Harrison song on it. And um, I mean, I'm not sure the song is really notable. It's uh, the only thing is like the lyrics are notable because George Harrison is it's called Don't Bother Me. And George Harrison is literally saying, like, just leave me alone, which is not a thing that was a common topic in pop rock songs back then. But otherwise, musically, it's a little weird, but it's it's certainly not as sophisticated as the songs that uh John Lennon and Paul McCartney were writing, and that's not a surprise. It was the first song he had actually got onto record. So, the next one is "Little Child," which is not a favorite of mine, but it plays around with the verse and chorus structure. The verse is actually the chorus, basically in terms of lyrics, and the chorus. Chorus is the one where the the lyrics change. So they they were starting to play around a little bit with the format. It also includes a break for the first time, which was not something the Beatles had been doing so far. Weirdly. I don't know if that's a thing that was common or uncommon, but that's something that they are. It's a deliberate choice, anyway. You gotta think. That was sorry. Uh, uh, sorry, there are all the originals on the first side of the album, and they're in the same key. And then on the second side of the album, they are not in that key. So there is a uh, "Hold Me Tight," which is the first original on the second side, has a guitar riff that they had. They really not. They were much more relying on the harmonica uh, hooks beforehand. And this is their first like use of sort of a a lead guitar riff that would become quite common for them. The next song is I Want to Be Your Man, which the Beatles wrote for the Rolling Stones. As I mentioned in the previous episode, they wrote a lot of songs for other artists to start. They often didn't record themselves, but in this case, they did record this one. The Rolling Stones had a, a top 15 hit in the UK with it. And honestly, like the, the Stones version is is better, I think. The next track is Not a Second Time. It is very, it's much, much better than I Want to Be Your Man, I think it's safe to say. Like once again, they play around the bridge and the chorus. They sort of don't, they sort of screw around the formula. The guitar solo in the song is based on the melody of the chorus and not of the verse, which the common thing to do back then was you played the guitar solo, came, the melody came from the verse. And then in the second verse, the bass actually doesn't play the conventional bass part, and instead a piano plays the bass part which is also a weird little thing. So they're starting to experiment with like changing the roles of, of instruments and stuff. And um, they also, they double track John Lennon's voice, but then they, instead of blending them like they usually would, they actually uh, split it across. So like you, you hear him on two different sides, which, which sounds like it's two different singers. And again, this was like a weird little thing that people were not normally doing. The covers on the album are less obscure than the first time out but they are still variety there's still variety till there was you was a broadway song this time it was taken from a more famous musical the music man 
and they'd actually been performing it for years, so it was totally normal for them to play it. But again, like I said about Please Please Me, it's not really a normal thing to have a, a Broadway show tune on a rock record back then. They also Latinized it a little bit by adding, um, first of all, they made it acoustic, but they also added some Latin percussion, which was not in the musical. There were bells on a hill, but I never heard them ringing. No, I never heard them at all till there was you. They also covered Please Mr. Postman, which was a number one uh, Motown hit. So again, not as obscure. They It is pretty straight up, but I, I, I think it sounds, though it sounds pretty close to the original, I think it's pretty decent. They also um, covered Rollover Beethoven, which is also actually quite mm-hmm. close to the original compared to the covers they did on the first record. And also the first of many, many Chuck Berry covers over the years. I think on this in this particular track, George Harrison does do a good imitation of Chuck Berry, but that's at that point that's all he's really doing. You really got a hold on me. They is a soul song, um, I believe, by the Miracles, if I'm not mistaken. They actually do mess with "You Really Got a Hold on Me" in a way that they didn't mess with "Roller Beethoven" or "Please Mr. Postman," and they they changed the ending like they did on a bunch of the covers on the first album, and they also changed the key, which was the thing they often did with their covers. And then there's Devil in Her Heart, which was the only really obscure cover this time. The other songs were known to their audience, which is not true of the first record. It had been released as a single in the States by, I don't remember, the performer. And they somehow got their hands on it, And uh, even though it was not a hit. And then once again, they changed the ending and the key. And then lastly, there's their attempt to recapture the experience of Twist and Shout, this time with money. Shout, but it's still a pretty decent version of it. And actually, there's a cover from I think the 80s by a woman who that actually relies more on the Beatles version than it does on the original. The other thing to note about with the Beatles is that the quality, sound quality of the record is better. And that's in part because I think they had a better budget, but there's also like there's vocal overdubs, there's uh, the keyboard debut of Paul McCartney, of course. There are more instruments not just piano, but also uh, various percussion instruments. Martin plays uh, keyboards on a couple tracks, including a harmonium, which I think was a very early use of a harmonium. They're very minor innovations, I think, compared to the kind of things that would happen soon, but it was still weird for a British band, and it once again sort of showed their forward-thinkingness even as they were essentially making Please Please Me too. It was still, at least from an arrangement perspective and a production perspective, more sophisticated than that album was. And it had only been, it came out 10 months after the first one, which is one of the things that I want to stress through all this is the Beatles, the speed at which the Beatles would change uh, as is going to become evident soon. So up next, we have I Want to Hold Your Hand. 
which was released in November as well, but at the very end of the month, a week after with the Beatles. for a couple of reasons. The first is that it was the first time the Beatles got to record on four track. Yes, everything they recorded before was on two track. There were some eight track machines that had existed in the US since the late 50s, but they did not exist in the UK. And so uh, they must have been like just absolutely over the moon to, to have a four track machine. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's, it's hard to imagine now that you could only have four tracks. And the other notable thing about I Want to Hold Your Hand is that it was their first hit in the United States, and it marks the beginning of the British invasion and, unfortunately, the American version of Beatlemania. Two months after it came out in the States, Americans would release uh, Capital, their record, American record label would release Meet the Beatles, a play on with the Beatles. I Want to Hold Your Hand was their biggest hit to date. It was everywhere, and it, it it was hard to avoid. Bob Dylan is quoted as saying when he first heard it, they were doing things nobody was doing. Their chords were outrageous, just outrageous. And their harmonies made it all valid. That is the reaction of arguably the 20th century's greatest English language songwriter. So take that for what it's worth. The Beatles were trying to write a little bit in a Brill building style. Uh, if you don't know what the Brill building is, it's a building in New York City where there was a songwriting factory that were used to write a whole bunch of people wrote pop songs that were then sold to various groups and artists. The song is written in the real building style, but of course, uh, the arrangement is just still their usual rock arrangement of two guitars, bass, and drums. That was not a normal thing, of course, but they had already covered a real building track, so it's not that weird. Uh, Alan Pollock, the musicologist I've quoted once already and will quote again later, claims that it is the culmination of everything they'd done up to this point, featuring various weird, subtle quirks that were not common in Brill Building songs, but were subtle enough that nobody really noticed. Once again, they recorded a German version. It would be the last time they did that. Then there's the B-side. The B-side is nothing like the A-side, which was now a common thing. For the Beatles to do. They would put out an A-side and the song they would put on the B-side would usually stylistically be quite, quite different. That boy took my love away He'll regret it someday But this boy wants you This was John Lennon's attempt to write a Motown song instead doing a cover and it is the first time that the beatles introduced their famous three-part harmonies in sort of a pure form because that's the main focus of the song and it actually even though it's an attempt to write a motown song it also sounds a little bit like the beach boys so there you have a weird fusion of beach boys and motown i think it's also notable for john lennon's lead vocal performance which is very much trying to be a soul singer it's worth noting that it was very unlikely that uh, Americans who were buying the I Want to Hold Your Hand single had heard a combination like this of a uh, a sort of a rock band performing a, a 
a song in the structure of a, a sort of classical American pop song with then a, a soul song that echoed the Beach Boys on the other side of it. So by the end of 1963, the Beatles were fast becoming the most popular band in the world, or at least in Europe. It, in early 1964, it was the world. It's worth noting they were big before most of the other British acts, any acts of the 60s, really. In fact, by late 1963, the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones were the only uh, two famous groups you've heard of from the 60s to have recording contracts. Now, they both had them, in case of the Beach Boys, they had them prior to the Beatles, but they really, they're the only people who predated them. And as I mentioned before, the Beatles wrote songs for the Rolling Stones because the Rolling Stones actually didn't write their own material to start. And it's worth noting that if you have ever bought into either the Beatles versus Rolling Stones argument or the uh, Beatles versus Beach Boys argument, you can just go back and listen to the material that all of these groups put out in, in the early 60s and see, uh, which is more sophisticated. And I think there's it's not really close for the most part. I will talk about this in, in, in more detail a little bit later. It's also worth noting that any of the other like famous bands of both the British Invasion and um, and the 60s in general didn't really exist yet. Certainly the Who and the Kinks and the Birds and other bands did not have recording contracts yet. I also want to uh, briefly mention that Lennon and McCartney had become a bit of a songwriting factory to start. The Beatles have been covered about as much as Benny Band in history, at least rock band anyway. But in their early years, they were also essentially a British Lieber and Stoller. If you don't know who Lieber and Stoller are, they are one of the most successful uh, American songwriting duos of their era, if not ever. By my count, the Beatles wrote and never recorded at least 10 other songs, nearly an additional full LP for other bands in the first couple of years of their existence. They did most of that in 1964, and they did it mostly for a band called Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. These songs were often used by other artists or their management as singles, and they weren't, they didn't really find their way onto LPs, which is notable that the quality of the Lennon and McCartney songs was so high that people were coming after them saying, I need, I need what you did for that guy. They did record some of these songs as well, but often they didn't release them. But all this music I've talked about today is not why I'm making a claim for them as the greatest rock band of all time. If these two albums were the only things they ever did, they would be an important step in uh, the history of rock music, but that's it. They would be the band that started the British invasion and thereby drastically changed American rock music, creating pop rock, and that's the end of the story. But that's not what happened. They would keep going for nearly another seven years, and in part because of what they had started, they would soon have challengers to their innovative approach to music because... Soon, a lot of other people would be forming bands and getting record contracts. One of the remarkable things about them is that they were the biggest band in the world before they got really innovative, and they would become the biggest band in the world very shortly. It's kind of hard for us to imagine that now, I think. Usually people sort of evolve. Usually they evolve before they really hit their stride commercially, but these guys were big, and then they got really weird. And I don't know, maybe there are examples of bands doing that. I'm not sure. But like their real innovative changes happened after they made it. And that I think is fairly interesting and notable. The other thing that's notable going forward, which we are going to get to in future episodes, is that they were, the Beatles had started to establish, they would soon start to establish the idea of a rock band that progresses much like a classical composer does or a jazz performer does. In the classical world, 
traditionally you are not you are supposed to evolve from piece to piece. It's certainly major opus to major opus, and the same thing with jazz performers, if not from record to record, to at least from major performance to major performance. In the popular music world, in the early '60s, that was not true. You were just supposed to have hits. There wasn't this idea of artistic progression, and very soon the Beatles would introduce that idea and and sort of codify it, codify it, however you want to pronounce that word, so that it became the standard by which rock bands were evaluated by. And so that's where we're going to move in the next episode when they start inventing new genres or helping to invent new genres and doing all sorts of weird things. 